Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Blueberry, SoundCloud, PodBay, Overcast, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, and at www.vhha.com. You may also hear episodes of the podcast each Saturday at 11 a.m. on WJFN 100.5 FM in the Richmond area. Please listen on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You may also send questions, comments, or feedback to pcfpodcast at vhha.com. That's pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Today, we are pleased to be joined by the UVA Director of Medical Imaging Research, Dr. John Mugler III, whose work in medical imaging has been recognized by the National Academy of Inventors for its groundbreaking innovation. Today, we'll discuss that honor, Dr. Mugler's achievements in medical imaging and how they help doctors and patients. And with that, we'd like to welcome Dr. Mugler to the program. Thanks for joining us today, sir. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, we are appreciative of you making a few moments to be with us. The history of medical imaging dates back to the late 1800s, as I understand it, and the discovery of x-rays by a German scientist. And this advancement gave birth to radiography and set us on a path today towards what is known as radiology, which is the medical discipline that relies on imaging technology to diagnose and treat disease. Over the years, leaps and bounds have been made in this field to enable doctors to visualize bones and tissue and internal organs and blood vessels and the digestive system and so many more of the internal anatomy. Nuclear imaging provides the ability to see disease clusters in the body, computed tomography, which is commonly known as a CT scan. There's ultrasound, there's magnetic resonance imaging or MRI, and those are many of the forms of medical imaging that give us glimpses inside the body. So those are sort of the high-level basics. Dr. Mugler, if you would, uh, could you explain how your work that's now being honored has yielded important advances in MRI capability and image quality? I began work in the MRI field. Fortunately, I was a grad student when uh, the technology was just starting to become into widespread use. This was in the mid-1980s. So at that time, there was a lot of opportunity to develop new techniques or better techniques. And another important aspect of MRI is that the scanners are largely software-driven. So if you obtain the tools from the manufacturer to essentially program the scanners, then you sort of have an open slate to, to do all kinds of new things. And the work that we've done here falls into that category of developing some new techniques that happen to be very useful for certain applications. And as I understand it, and please correct me if I have any of the technological specifics wrong here, but what you are being honored for is helping MRI make the leap from two-dimensional imaging to three-dimensional imaging using technique called pulse sequence, which produces detailed images that enable doctors to detect subtle abnormalities in the body earlier, which can lead to better diagnosis, uh, better treatment, etc. And this is now standard technology that's, that's available in hospitals around the world. Is that correct? Well, yes, I can elaborate a little bit. So the term pulse sequence just refers to any MRI technique that collects data and makes images. It's the generic term for that, that, that process. Uh, in the early days of MR, there existed both uh, 2D, so-called 2D and 3D techniques. The 2D techniques would take a series of what are called slices, sort of like slices of bread, uh, to look at the region of interest in the body. 
whereas 3D techniques would collect information from a whole volume, such as, say, your whole knee or your whole brain. And in the early years of MRI, both techniques existed, but the 2D techniques were primarily used. And so what we did was over a period of about 10 years, we worked on two different techniques that had become widespread used, used in widespread application. We developed some 3D-based techniques that produced superior image contrast, meaning you can see the difference between one tissue of interest and another in a better way than the techniques that had existed before. And these turned out to be very useful in a variety of applications, but particularly for brain imaging. And so you're now, as we mentioned, you're being honored by the National Academy of Inventors, one of a handful of academics who are being recognized as an inducted fellow. So congratulations on that. And then if I could just ask you to paint me a quick picture of where you were and what your reaction was when you received the official notification of this. Well, I remember this each year they uh, induct a number of people. And so it's too many people for someone to call you personally, like they do for some very high level awards. But what they do is they send you a very nice email to tell you that you've been inducted. I knew I was being considered, but I didn't know, you know whether I'd get in or not. And I remember I was actually sitting in the kitchen at my daughter's house in Cleveland. And I was going through my email and I said, wow, look at that. And I called my wife in and uh, because, as I, as I said, I knew I was under consideration, but I I really didn't know whether I'd get in or not. In fact, I thought I probably wouldn't because it was getting late, you know, up to the time where they would announce it, and I hadn't heard anything. So I, you know, I figured I didn't make it this year. So, well, that I'm is very pleased. That is quite the honor, and congratulations again. I want to go back a moment ago to something you said about the work that you did, and you said this was done over a series of of years. I think you said around ten years. Can you just again, sort of from a high level perspective? Explain sort of what what happened sort of over this 10-year process and how, you know, the steps that occurred to get to the point that you, you reached this breakthrough. Well, as I mentioned that both these types of techniques existed, very high-level 2D and 3D, although most imaging was done with 2D, but I... I really can't explain why, but I had a an interest. I thought that 3D techniques could be used more and that they would be very valuable because of the level of physical or structural detail that they let you see. So I was interested in trying to develop some better techniques of that type. And at the same time, I had started going to, there's a number of professional meetings in this field where you go and see what other people are doing and learn the latest things. And I would attend those and I would very carefully try to understand what everybody was doing and then try to figure out how to use that information to come up with something better. And that's what was going on at the time is I, I knew I wanted to work in this area of improved 3D techniques for MRI. And I was just gathering information from the field and trying to think about how to do things better and doing experiments here at UVA back on the first scanner that we had. It was actually the first scanner in the state of Virginia. It was installed, uh, I think, around 1985, 1986. And so just for someone who is not a medical professional, given the advancement that, that your work has led to, what's the difference from a layperson's perspective between the capabilities of the the imaging equipment and the image clarity that could be achieved before 
your discoveries and where are things now and, and what is the, the difference between the two? As we've been talking about these techniques focus on so-called three-dimensional acquisitions and one of the prime advantages of that is you get what's called high spatial resolution, which you means you can see small physical details no matter which way you look at the structure. So if you're thinking about looking at your brain from the front or the side or the top. And one of the important practical outcomes of that is these techniques are both used in routine diagnostic imaging. That means when someone goes in and they have to have a scan of their brain for some reason, but also in many clinical trials where they're trying to understand the details of neurological diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease, and understand how this disease develops and how it progresses. So the techniques that I developed are being used in these trials, and what they actually do because of the three-dimensional resolution that they provide is they can analyze very small structural changes in the brain over time and then look at how these are happening in Alzheimer's patients versus normal patients or some other disease, and it lets them understand things about the disease process and quantify things that are going on in the disease process. Well, that's really fascinating. I appreciate you offering that explanation. Um, just out of curiosity, what inspired you um, as a younger man to to get into this line of, of work? What was the attraction for you? Well, I actually took somewhat torturous, not too torturous, path. When I first went to college, I went to undergraduate at the University of Virginia. I thought I wanted to go to medical school. But after being in college a few months or maybe even a few weeks, I decided that probably wasn't the best thing for me, and I ended up going into engineering. At that time, I was a mechanical engineer, and I actually got my bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering, and then I got a master's degree in mechanical engineering at Stanford, and I worked as a mechanical engineer for a couple years. Well, while I was working, I still found I had this strong interest in things related to medicine, and that's when I decided after a couple years of work that I wanted to go back to graduate school but go into biomedical engineering. So I could both combine my engineering physical science interest with the medical interest. And it was just happenstance. I didn't know what MRI was when I went back to graduate school. It was just happenstance. I went to a seminar in our department and a fellow, uh, one of the faculty came and talked about MRI. And this was in the very early days, maybe something like 84, when there weren't very many MRI scanners in the world. And I saw the seminar and I said, you know, God, this is really interesting. I think I might like to work on this, you know, for my PhD research. And the person that gave the seminar actually didn't do MRI. He just gave the seminar because he saw it. He said, <laughs> this is really interesting. But he told me, he said, well, I don't do this, but UVA radiology department is about to hire a guy from Florida to help them with the first MRI scanner that they're getting. And his name is, you know, actually his name was a long, he's a longtime colleague of mine. His name's James Brookman. He said, you should go meet him when he gets here. And, you know, maybe you could work in this area. And, and that's what I did. And James Brookman became my Ph.D. advisor. And uh, I guess the rest, as they say, is history. Well, it is interesting, the, uh, the twists and turns that life takes us on sometimes. But that's a, it's a really interesting story. We've talked about the work that you have been recognized for. But I understand that you're also doing additional research and work now that's focused on lung imaging using a technique that involves non-toxic gases to yield high-resolution images. 
that would be superior to any current technology. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Yes. These are the they're so-called hyperpolarized gases. It's either a form of helium or a form of xenon, both of which are non-toxic. And you can, what you might think of as prepare these gases in a way that you can make MR images of them. So you can prepare them, breathe them in, and make high-resolution images of the lung. Something we really didn't mention about MRI, but MRI is so powerful because it can give you a lot of information, not just pictures, but it can tell you like blood flow velocities. It can tell you things about the structure of the brain. Well, the same applies to the lung. With these hyperpolarized gases, you can both see how well you're breathing in and out, but you can also get information about how big the air spaces are in your lung. You can get information about how the gas that you breathe in goes into the tissue and into the blood and whether that's normal or not. And so that's what these gases can provide, which is uh, in, in not, not just as a number, but as an image. You can get a map of how one part of your lung is working uh, relative to another. This research has been going on now as a tool in just a few universities in the world for about 25 years. But one of these agents, the xenon-based agent, is expected to become FDA-approved maybe within a year or so. And then we hope, of course, that this technology can make it out to wider spread application and make some important advancements as far as treating lung diseases. Well, that sounds very promising, and I appreciate you explaining that. Uh, after our pretty technical conversation, I want to close with two questions that will give people who are listening to this a bit of a sense about who you are beyond your professional work. And so the first question is this, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given and why is it important to you? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is something uh, my PhD advisor, James Brookman, told me when I was a PhD student. And that advice, it's, it's professionally oriented, but it can apply to almost anything. And that is, you know, don't concentrate and always think about what you're doing now, but think about what you want to do next and think about what you need to do to get to where you want to be next. So sort of where do you see yourself in five years or whatever the timeline is? Yeah, that's the that same sort of idea is, you know, to basically, or you could say, look to the future. Absolutely. Well, that's good advice. And then our final question is one that we ask all of our guests on VHHA's Patients Come First podcast. It is one that's inspired by a popular BBC program. And the question, Dr. Muggler, is this. If you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself occupied? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what one book, one album, and one movie would be in your personal survival kit? That's a very tough question. Uh, I would say for an album, it's sort of a greatest hits album of a sort called uh, This Is The Moody Blues. Mm -hmm. I'm familiar. And I love you. For a movie, it doesn't sound like a, a choice an adult would make, but maybe Madagascar. Okay. So a tropical theme. Okay. <laughs> and for a book, I have a hard time with this selection. I don't know that I can name a specific book, but I would probably pick something off the current bestseller list just because I in many years have not read 
hardly any books that aren't focused on uh, medical imaging, particularly MRI. So some something that's a little bit more light reading, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so I've done a, you know very little pleasure reading for a long time because I'm always reading technical stuff all the time. Okay. Well, listen, being on an island or being on vacation is the perfect time for pleasure reading. So grab something from that bestseller list and uh, crack open those pages. Well, with that, that brings us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast and subscribe so that you know when new episodes will be available. And thanks again to our guest, UVA Director of Medical Imaging Research, Dr. John Mugler III, for joining us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. My pleasure.